Welcome to the SeaWorld Conservatives Podcast. Today we're talking about light. I'm Jenny Mathieson, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome back to our special guest host, Sarah. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Sarah Potter. I'm an object and preventive conservator in Greater Manchester. Hi, Sarah. It's really good to have you back. Hi, great to be back. (laughs) And Sarah was last with us on the Contemporary Art episode a couple of seasons ago, so check Mm. that out. So today we're going to talk about light, which is a topic that is important, but also aggravating. I love light. Light is also difficult to control and slightly the bane of my collection's existence sometimes. I don't know how all of you feel about light. I feel like conservators have an interesting relationship with light. Oh, absolutely. If you think of our conservation studios and sometimes you want as much light in as possible, so you're doing amazing treatment and you can see what you're doing and then you go into the galleries and you think, oh, we need to really minimise as much as we've got so we don't damage our collections or how do we manage what we've got going so yeah in the conservation role you're really working between the extremes I suppose aren't you yeah and that's a really really good point because like there's it's so important to have good light when you're working and I feel like it's oddly something that conservatives should almost be gushing more about but we don't actually it's kind of interesting like that I think I just love a good work light I've not thought I didn't think of the um, work light situation because I'm very lucky to be in a studio that's really really well lit but then sometimes we do like we have measured the lux levels underneath the tissue on a really long ongoing project and thought Mm. okay we're just going to have the lights off in this part of the studio for a while because (laughs) it's too high and you know it's easy to lose track of how long something is in the studio as well so yeah that's all right saying oh I'm going to really worry about the light levels on this three-month exhibition and then Mm. uh, an object sitting in the studio that's being well lit all the time for six months we've got loads of scraps of blackout fabric lying all over our studio so we use tyvek because it makes such a difference compared to tissue but i'd not thought of putting blackout fabric on it that's a good idea yeah yeah really really useful sometimes you know I, I will work you know in a gallery or something and it's so tricky to get the light right because suddenly you're like oh this is the gallery light levels that's not actually that great for me trying to do any work in here even if it's just you know head torches man yeah yeah but then you know i don't know i like a stationary light that i don't have to like i don't know <laughs> i like wiggling around a lot i think yeah okay fair enough it's the trailing wires that i don't like you know i love a good work light i'm a big fan but then i suppose i used to work in like um a workroom that like only had like you know like the kind of fluorescent tubes over you know overhead and like no natural light at all and now i have like two windows and i'm so grateful <laughs> They're not big windows, but it just kind of makes a big difference. I feel like, well, I'd like to hear if anyone has any really complicated work like a system, but I feel like mm. it's the gallery spaces that really have the controllable and complicated lighting systems. Mm-hmm. I don't think mine is personally particularly very complicated, but I thought it'd be nice if we could talk about the things that we have to work with in our own gallery spaces and how light comes into managing light, I should say, comes into our roles day to day. So my lighting system, we've got LED lights on our gallery one and normal bulbs upstairs. And as conservation we're in charge of obviously checking light levels but also changing bulbs and adjusting where the lights are and stuff for exhibitions and things so this kind of more curatorial side of how something's lit and like angles and drama and stuff like that but it's really simple it's controllable so you can adjust the lux levels which is ideal 
when you say controllable, I'm curious, how do you control them? Like, is it like, are they dimmable or what? Dimmable, what, yeah. What, what, what is that? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so we, I mean, some of them are really, really high up because the ceilings for hanging banners are ginormous. So you have to get yeah. the big ladder out. And, um, you know, I'm not the tallest of, of the people in the world. So yeah. there are some that I... <laughs> can't do because even on the big ladder i can't get to them yeah sure but yeah they they are adjustable with a tool but in order to change them you've got to take the individual ones down and they're great but sometimes they can be a bit kind of glitchy with how they attach like sometimes they don't twist on so well so there's a bit of like fighting with them but we've recently involved one of the members of front of house who's really interested in gallery maintenance and stuff like that so we've trained him in lux level testing and light bulb changing and light changing and all of that and stuff and what about you sarah like chloe we've got a range of all different types of lighting systems. So we've got Dali and non-Dali tracks. Dali track is basically um, something that's a digitally addressable lighting interface. And it's a type of track that's basically a very intelligent lighting track system. Oh, okay, this sounds mm-hmm. really complicated. But we also have non-Dali tracks, so it's a non like it's the same as you, Chloe. So some of the systems we've got, it's basically you've got an individual light. You pop it up, and there's a dial on the light where you turn it up and down, and you can control the light level mm-hmm. on the unit of the light itself, and you just get up a ladder. Or some of them we have to go up on um, a Mupol cherry picker because they're five metres up in the air. So you can't get a ladder up there. So you've got wow. to mm-hmm. get up and have a head for height. And then we've got an array of like LED lighting. But we also have some older systems as well. So halogen and strip lighting are still in some of our gallery spaces. And we also have windows as well in, in one of our galleries. So it's kind of mitigating the light that's coming in, the natural light in that way as well. So it's kind of an array. And then in our newer exhibition spaces, we've got... Um, an intelligent lighting system and that's kind of complicated and um, in theory it, we're able to use natural daylight alongside artificial light and it was seen as a way in which we could um, reduce our carbon costs and our footprint within the galleries oh, so it was seen as a more okay. environmentally oh, okay. friendly system and we have light inbuilt light sensors into the tracks and it monitors a one meter by one meter square on the wall Whoa. and it tells the system how bright it is with the daylight and then it can dim the lights or increase the light levels so that the gallery space always looks the same so that's kind of oh, what wow. it has to do in mind and what you can do is you can shut the louvre so you've got a completely blackout space if you want to so you don't have to use the daylight you can use just artificial light but it's a way that they were seen as actually we've got quite a good resource and we can have all this diffuse light coming into the gallery so i say diffuse because it's not direct sunlight because obviously that's something that we can't control in the space we want it really yeah. diffuse and really get rid of all the shadows and obviously everything's got uv film on so we really reduce the range of um, radiation coming into the gallery but that's kind of quite an interesting system and it is in an exhibition space so we end up changing over that space probably every three or four months. And it's a very complicated system to work. And actually, at the moment, I'm the only one who understands how it works, which oh, no. isn't very good at all. <laughs> and we've been working alongside engineers for the last four years to get this system kind of working for us. So it's kind of a lot of toing and froing Because obviously, we're always in changeovers, isn't it? And it's mm. an exhibition space. It means that we've only got a really short window during changeovers where people can come in and quickly work on the behind the scenes systems and how it's going and and the changes that we want to be made. So that's why it's kind of taken a really, really long time for us to get anywhere with that system. 
Mm. So that's quite interesting. But usually before we even start installing exhibitions or taking down the previous exhibitions, we all have meetings about how we want the aesthetics of the build to look. And that includes the lighting as well. And so we can kind of mitigate the curatorial expectations of, of what shows going to look like beforehand. So we can say, okay, yeah. what artworks are in here? What loans are coming in? What light levels or requirements has everyone asked for? And then we can kind of plan from the very beginning. Because what you don't want is the curatorial team not to realise that actually you've got an artwork that, you know, the lenders are really happy to have a really high light level next to a work that requires 50 looks. Mm, so it's kind of yeah. then balancing a show and say, well, if you want that light level on that, then it'd be better to move that artwork over here. Or what we can do is we can build a wall to really alter how the eye perceives the light level and, you know, really kind of guide and make a feel for the exhibition rather oh, than just kind of saying. brilliant. So it's really thinking about the aesthetics of a show. It's so great that you've got that much kind of guidance control. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're really lucky. So the curatorial team are really aware of some of the conservation damages and and the threats to the collection. So I think it's just through working with them really closely on exhibitions and it's kind of become one of the trigger points of now. And I think also with a really complicated lighting system, it kind of gets them more invested because you say, oh, it's going to take me quite a while to get this this aesthetic. It'd be great if you had an idea of how it's going to look beforehand and then we can bring in the technicians and we can bring in, you know, designs and, and, and planning of how we're going to use that space. And sometimes it also means that we might need to have to rent some lighting systems to help get the visuals that they want so we might might go to um oh. so we use um a company who do stage design and and they also are in um like festivals and do lots of riggings and they have lots of like dramatic light sets and stuff so sometimes we borrow and use lights from them and get them to come in and, and help give us that visual effect oh that's so cool which is really interesting if you think about what people think that they want a show to look like a lot of the time with the kit that you have in the museum you can't really achieve all of that a lot of our systems are just designed for a general wall wash so if someone wants a really dramatic lighting like our systems just sometimes can't do that and you can get different filters that you can put on different lights which we do use but sometimes if you want something really specific you're better off going to someone who really knows what they're doing and getting them involved and just saying okay you can have this it'll cost you more money but it's it's your decision then isn't it yeah, it's a good point because I was watching a, a webinar from Connecting to Collections about LED lighting and stuff like that. And uh, it was a tad too technical for me in general, but you could really tell that the guy who was uh, presenting the webinar really knew his stuff. So he really knew, you know, light design and how you could like use different filters and diffuse light in different ways and stuff like that. And just how you direct the light. And, and you know, it just reminded me that I don't do light design. I don't know how to make anything like this work. I can at best just go, that spotlight should go over there. <laughs> how does yours work then? So ours is, uh, I suppose mine's probably the most low tech in that we've got, you know, we, we've just got like the rail system with the little spotlights and some of those are halogen and some of those are LED just because they haven't been replaced. So that was one of those things that like I kind of discovered as I came in that because people hadn't really known what kind of lights they were supposed to be getting, they'd just been getting whatever. And that kind of meant that it was ones that emitted some UV and stuff like that. And like they, they weren't super ideal. So then we started looking at that and we've been gradually moving over to LED wherever we can. 
but it's just spotlights really they have no filters on them they're, they're not fancy so you know we adjust them when we change the display and stuff like that so that you know you get you know light on the bits that you want or maybe if the light levels are a bit high and you're putting taxidermy in the case you just you know angle it in a different way so that it diffuses the light better but there's not really a lot I can do with it I suppose in our museum it's more of a communal effort to look after the light system in that it's generally front of house or collections team that replace light bulbs and adjust them when there's an exhibition on and stuff and then I do more of the light monitoring stuff so I go around as regularly as I can and and basically just check the light levels in different galleries and stuff like that because uh, we have a lot of windows because we're partly in a historic building and uh, we do like having the windows open partly because you know visitors like it and partly because it's part of the house you're supposed to be able to see the grounds you're supposed to be able to see the view and even though those rooms are now galleries rather than historic rooms in terms of what's in them that's it's still part of the experience of the building to be able to look out and see the grounds because we're in a park that's kind of a big deal in terms of the aesthetic that does pose some challenges so some rooms are less good for light sensitive materials and stuff like that in some galleries we make the choice to have the shutters closed because all of the windows in the historic part of the house have shutters or sometimes we use blinds kind of half down or fully down to diffuse the light a bit better so that there's not direct sunlight coming in and in theory there's uv film on the windows although it's old so it doesn't work as well as it should so something that i think a lot of people kind of forget about is that uv film is very expensive <laughs> and it's one of those things so if that wasn't factored into the budget you know 10 years ago that oh we need to actually replace this regularly that can come as kind of a shock when people realize that uv film doesn't last forever and that it needs to be replaced and you know when you've got like a house full of windows that's actually quite a lot of money and you know you've got to match expectation with what you can have in the gallery and stuff like that and sometimes that just leads to reevaluating what can be on display you know it might be this room is all about people being able to enjoy the view and that means that we're only going to keep non-light sensitive things in this room Room. so sometimes it just becomes that kind of dialogue rather than trying to control the light it's actually more about well this can go in the room then so i think i'm probably the more low tech in that i don't have a lot of options for changing anything but i can work with what i've got which is usually blinds and shutters and read directional spotlights so that's kind of what i've got i agree with you jenny we've got a gallery space and that's really um bright and it looks out onto the park and even though we do have two types of blinds we've got a blackout blind and then like a diffuse blind that people can actually see out onto people do still expect to see out into the park and kind of get the mm. setting for the space and what we've done in that space is just say okay then we can't achieve certain light levels and that means that we can only display this set of collections so it's you know collections that are uh, not sensitive to light levels or it's our historic oil collection that yeah. is behind glass because it's quite an active mm. space as well. So we just say, you know, these are the type of collections that we can display in this space. And it's it's like working with the with the space that you've got and the collections that you've got and, and kind of seeing if it's the best fit for, for that gallery space or if it should move somewhere else. I was going to say I'm really grateful for not having windows in my gallery spaces, but actually there are large spaces that aren't technically gallery spaces, but they are used for exhibitions. So... Um, mm like a huge pump house essentially with gigantic windows really really tall there would be 
absolutely no ability to cover any of the windows at all and occasionally we have had to talk to people about either the safety of their own objects going in there even if they're they're not museums but you know people's stuff and try and communicate like okay well yes we can have this object in here for a limited period of time but this has to be the limit because there is no there's no environmental control in here and it's extremely bright and i've not thought about even seasonal changes and stuff as um things that would be affected by the windows in a in an institution that's really cool I guess that's why I quite like doing the light monitoring stuff as well, because I've got like a little map where I basically I've got specific places where I will check the like lux and UV levels. And, you know, I'll do like morning and afternoon and that, that way I can kind of map what happens throughout the year in terms of light levels and stuff and you know where it hits in the morning and where it hits in the afternoon and stuff like that and ultimately like my hope is that that can help inform decisions about what goes in those places in the future so right now it'll just tell me that it's a terrible idea to have that there let's move that or let's make sure that that case doesn't have costume in it so right now it's low impact but I'm hoping it can kind of feed into bigger decisions in the future I guess because it's just good to be aware of what's happening with your light levels in different in different areas so Jenny that do you just go around with a a light meter and just kind of take analog readings yes because we have a telemetric system for environmental monitoring but only two of those loggers and they're in like loan cases and next to a fancy painting like we've only got two of those that actually record light levels because they are significantly more expensive uh so we could afford two of those and and so we put those in strategic places, but it still means that for me to have any idea what's going on in the rest of the museum, I go around with a handheld one uh, mm-hmm. and just do it in the same spot every time. I think we're lucky. We've got a few of the um, telemetric light meters and, and I've got a few oh, spare. They're absolutely can, gold if you have them. <laughs> I can move them around and it, it's really, really useful. And then we also do use um, ISO blue wall loggers as well if we need to. I like those. Should too. we talk a bit more about what those are for people that don't know? Uh, you're just talking about the little um, blue wool stripes, aren't you? It's what, like five or six different types of blue on like a piece of card, isn't it? Yeah, each with a different sensitivity. So I think. Yeah, I've not used those before. Obviously, I've seen them, but I've not I've not used them myself. I have created my own with modern materials. <laughs> I can't remember if I said this in the modern materials episode, but literally just two bits of mount card on the underneath one stick loads of bits of modern materials and then half cover cover them with another bit of mount card and write the date next to them Mm -hmm. seriously basic yeah but it's really it's a really good like windowsill experiment essentially Mm. it's really really useful and i love seeing when people do them i want to talk about lux requirements of specific materials but can i ask you to explain the telemetric light what's its first yeah, so we've got some telemetric light monitors. Basically, um, they do temperature, relative humidity, and they also do our light. So they they measure lux and UV within the little sensor. So it's basically a little box sensor with an aerial, and it, you basically just pop it in your gallery space on the wall, and whatever light level hits that, and that's what you record. And the same with any telemetric system, you calibrate it every year, get someone in to calibrate it. That's something that you can't calibrate yourself, or I've never been able to calibrate light sensors myself. Um, instead, we get external suppliers coming in. So that, that can add to quite a bit of the cost and the ad- actual running cost of the systems. And the handheld devices are absolutely amazing, and I don't think we could do our job without them. Um, so the ones that we've got, they are like little LSEC ones that we have. Yeah, and they're just same. they also do relative humidity and temperature, and then we use that to set all our lighting systems as well. And again, we calibrate them manually as well. Uh, the the bonus of the ones that are 
telemetric is that you don't disturb the you know microclimate of the cases and you can still get readings from inside the cases and obviously you know that's where you know your stuff is so for me that's often the bit that I really care about because yeah I can measure how much light the paintings are getting that are on the wall but it's not like I can get in the cases well without a lot of hassle and disturbing the microclimate with my handheld monitor to check like how much light is actually falling onto that garment for example so it's super useful to be able to have those loggers in the case just so I don't have to faff with that yeah and in really difficult places to reach as well because you don't want to be able to cast in your own shadow when you're trying to measure a light <laughs> yeah. reading because that completely defies the point of what you're trying yes. to achieve yeah <laughs> We don't have any of those, but we have a lot of really small cases. So um, it's fairly common for when, you know, somebody's, I'm going into this case to get this object out for a researcher, or I'm going into this case to take a photo of this, blah, 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 whatever. Whatever it is, change this label, whatever. It's quite common for me or my colleague to sort of scuttle out with the light monitor going, I'm just going to change the light levels in there for a sec. I think you've both mentioned requirements of different objects and the different lux levels that are needed. What is it that you do with, to both of you, do with the different light levels that are required? Because we tend to, I mean, it's sort of by the book and the book is kind of not necessarily the law, as it were, but we tend to keep it at 50 lux. And that's because we have large textiles out on display, open display. I should say, that are really light sensitive. Yeah, yours is going to be very specific because you do have so many big textiles. Mm. So your yours is probably, in some ways, the more uniform because you've got like a lot of, you know, pretty paper pamphlets and a lot of like big textiles and like so you've got to be really strict with your light levels I think in a way that I feel like I don't I think it's just been more straightforward because all of our all of the rooms are all of the rooms both the rooms it's all mixed materials. We don't really have the ability to change them. Some of the kids, you know, it's a hundred year old silk banner next to a bucket from the 1980s, you know, plastic bucket from the 1980s. So it's yeah. kind of, it's sort of, yeah, it's just easier. And I know that's not best attitude of let's just keep it simple. But for communicating to, you know, different people about why it's dark in the galleries and and all of that and maintaining that low level of light for the banners out of curiosity how do you communicate that sort of thing because i'm always interested in how you communicate that this is going to be a dark space this is why well it's mainly um with mine too please don't use flash photography um to be honest okay and that's something that front of house and stuff do and they're they're kind of interested in they're interested to be able to add that kind of information into what they say to people because uh, it's better oh, okay. than just say no photos no photos no photos because <laughs> yeah, no. it's you know <laughs> they're nice people they negative. like talking to people yeah exactly yeah so it's it's that kind of thing. And it's also, it's easier for the temporary, temporary exhibition space to be able to say to lenders, this is what we're doing and we're, it's not changed. It's not different. Unless okay. we haven't yet had something that needs lower than that yet. And do you think you'd ever display anything lower than 50 looks? To be honest, yes. And I know that's, I feel like that's kind of controversial because <laughs> 50 is really low. But yeah. I've definitely... There have been instances where you're going around checking with the monitor and a light has gone out or has been moved for a reason. So 
I've checked the light level on a banner thinking that looks all right. And it's like 30 lux. And it looks all right. Do you think it's people's eyes have managed to adjust by the time they get round to that, that point? Yeah, I think so. There's an interview that we'll play later in that they're talking about the kind of the how to communicate why it's so dark in places. It'd be interesting to get feedback from different visitors if you did experiment lower than mm. 30 lux just to see if everyone was able to visibly you know appreciate the textiles or, or the object that was at that that's level. the problem yeah that's that is the issue because i do have quite good eyesight and so i'm quite prone to forgetting the um effect of light on people's ability to see stuff which is ridiculous but it's it is interesting actually because we have a provided everything goes back to normal after the strange lockdown situation we do have a year program next year on disability rights and stuff and i think maybe Mm. that will come up in the same way that we were talking about touch tours for access Mm -hmm. reasons and and getting different audiences to be able to enjoy the galleries that might come up so it might be that we have god though i don't know how we do bright days though well what about you sarah so we have for works on paper and textiles we tend to say about 50 looks and then we go up to 150 looks for um, some of our oils and acrylics and then 300 for some of our collections that just aren't light sensitive and we tend to keep them quite mm. low anyway because visually you don't want to go from a really bright gallery into a dark gallery into a bright gallery again yeah it, it really messes with your mm. eyesight so it's just kind of making sure that everything kind of fits together and kind of works together as a whole and not just gallery specific you've got to be quite careful as well because obviously every object is different and some of our um acrylic paintings they've actually have got bare canvas so even though it's an acrylic you're looking at it it has to be at a textile looks level because of the bare canvas Ooh. and it's unkind. Uh-huh. and so the canvas will start to deteriorate before the paint le- layer so that's oh, wow, kind of yeah. looking at the collection and and a lot of the times maybe a curator will go through the collection and be like oh this is, you know, this is an acrylic, it's fine, it can go in there and we'll look at it and go, actually, because it's got bare canvas, you, you, you can't, it would actually be a lower level. We work with a lot of artists as well, so they'll bring in their own materials or their own collections and, and we'd probably put it at a much lower light level than what the artists will have it. And because it's their, their yeah. objects, they're quite happy to blast it with light and get people in. Or alternatively, they'll be the complete opposite and they'll they'll come in and say, oh, I want it really dark, I want it really moody. And so not necessarily, it's, it's not necessarily about the light level to do with the damage that is happening to the collection. It's about the atmosphere around the work. So it's quite interesting working with them from that, from that point of view. But do you both know how we got to 50 looks and where 50 looks came from? I have definitely learned this. But um, from if I, my memory of it is it's just a random number that someone selected. <laughs> it's not quite that. But, um, <laughs> it's that a, a, a person with good eyesight can see a range of colours at 50 looks. So if, you're, ah. if you haven't got good eyesight, then you won't be able to see that range of colours. Or you'll need a higher looks level to be yeah. able to see that range. So it's based on someone who's like, like, basically someone who's quite got young eyes you kind of then wonder about your audience and what your audience mm. is and and is that representative mm. of your audience we try to have signs so actually we have like almost like a warning sign <laughs> over by the toilets which is a very brightly lit area where there's like some of these galleries will have low light levels and this is why just so kind of preparing people's expectations a little bit and also trying to kind of not subliminally but kind of 
implying that look that it's for collections care purposes so if you're annoyed by it please don't go go away and give us a give us a really bad review because it's not that the lights are broken or anything it's just that you know we've got to keep some areas darker than others there are areas that are you know 50 lux levels and they feel kind of cozy but again it's because you know i've got eyes you know that you know work reasonably well so i find them cozy not dark and terrible to see anything in and then a large part of our audience is actually quite elderly. So we are trying to move towards can we have higher light levels? Is that what people want? And I'm trying to get it to a point where we can kind of do some consulting with people and ask them if the trade-off is that you can only see these types of things in here. Is that what you would prefer? Like, do you want it to be a high light level and see this type of collection? Or do you actually want to see this type of collection and be okay with it being a bit darker because it's more an access thing but it's also like a mood thing people sometimes find it a bit like depressing to be in a darker gallery i'm trying to get it to the point where we talk more to visitors about it and kind of have more informed discussions about it i do like putting up signs in places though where it's like i i quite like my signs which have like little birds on them and like speech bubble saying we're not shy it's just that we're light sensitive and stuff like that so that i can kind of <laughs> communicate with people that of course you do beautiful cute signs of course you do <laughs> <laughs> so my galleries sound really really dark now no i think it sounds consistent i'm very curious by the way about lights in cases i find that we've got a mishmash of cases from like different generations of cases and a lot of them have built-in lights that we kind of can't change now or if we could that will cost all the money yes (laughs) and and that can be an interesting beast we're sticklers for the overhead lights yeah but the case lights i don't have any control over them and i don't understand how they work i think it's like yeah. an, i think it's a strip light that has sort of slightly mobile sort of magnifier type bulb type things those sort of things so it's not individual oh, yeah, light. I've got some of those. i think it's adjustable but i you need to take the case apart which is also the walls <laughs> in order to get into it and I can't I don't know how to do that how do we mitigate against that because at the moment I've changed the bulbs like the direction of the bulbs to try and keep it away yeah that's what I do too if it's an option some of some cases are oddly static I mean again this is just because we have generations of different cases right and so some of them are like super static where there's like appears to be like loads of little lamps on top somehow like mm-hmm. in the roof of the yeah. case and sometimes what i think it was almost like fairy lights but it's not fairy <laughs> lights in a tube down a side Aww. and i'm like why was that a good idea but that's somehow the light in there and that's not adjustable in any shape or form it's either on or off and you know it's it's sometimes absolutely bewildering and the, i think the most frustrating thing with me for case lights is that if sometimes if they break they're just not repairable because it's they're in sequence somehow so if one goes everything goes or or they don't make those lights anymore they don't make the replacement bulbs or oh case lights are the oh just the worst (laughs) (laughs) i was about to ask you sarah about the lights in your the cases in your gallery and then i just had a vivid like almost emotional memory of the case lights in your first textiles exhibition space they're just so beautiful I think they're about 13 years old now, though. Hi. And the company, yeah, and the company who developed them, unfortunately, their 
no longer running. So we had a training day with them earlier in the year and how we can work the lights. And it basically it's a um, fibre optic lighting system. So it's a big fibre. All the fibre optics go all the way into each individual light. So it's kind of like... 12 mm. individual lights down each side of the case and you put on different heads and filters and, and you kind of turn them Ooh. so there's 24 lights in each case and we have 12 cases so it takes a long time to get them looking good <laughs> wow, and then you've, got, cool, to, you've got to figure out what filters to put in so it's kind of yeah so it's really interesting and really that they they came over and showed us how to to alter them and fix them and it's really interesting. And they're actually the only case lights we have. Um, we have made cases before. And what we've done is we've put LED light strips inside the cases. And they usually come with a remote they, so you can dim oh. the LED light level. We get ones that you can fix the light level. So literally you just turn the light on and off and back on again. And it's a preset light level. And they're really simple and really cheap. So we've used them in a few of our cases. So I'd really recommend them if, yeah, if you if you're kind of struggling. So uh, Christina has given us an excellent interview here with David Saunders, who has written a new book, which, uh, by the way, I am reviewing at the end of this episode. So stay tuned. And actually, let's listen to David and Christina now. I'm David Saunders. I'm a conservation scientist. I worked at the National Gallery for around 20 years, and then I went on to be keeper of conservation scientific research at the British Museum. And about five years ago, I left that post, and I've had various fellowships and scholarships to allow me to independently research conservation science matters. As part of that, I went to the Getty as a guest scholar and then a research fellow and during that period I wrote the book on museum lighting. Why lighting in particular? Well I guess it's been a an interest of mine since I joined the National Gallery at the beginning of my career in conservation. And my first boss, the National Gallery, was Gary Thompson, who of course had written the great tome on the museum environment, which is still a a standard text now. I also was very interested in the way materials behaved in response to light. And so it's been a long-standing research interest, and I've toyed with the idea of writing on the subject for many years, but just really not had the time to put aside the day job and focus on writing something. How did your stint at the Getty feed into that? What were you doing while you were there? I was mostly doing literature research by the time I got to the Getty. And I set up some experiments which allowed me to produce images that would be good to illustrate points made in the book. As part of getting a scholarship at the Getty, you are given a research assistant. A a wonderful woman called Anna Durr is the research assistant for most of the Getty Conservation Institute scholars. And she has this encyclopedic knowledge of the conservation literature. And of course, is able to pull out some very obscure material that I would not otherwise have been able to get access to. So I was looking not only at the conservation literature about light damage, about how we see how our optical system works, but also looking at research in vision, looking at research into photodeterioration in other walks of life. 
I'd been frustrated by the fact that you couldn't go to one place to find the literature relevant to thinking about museum lighting, thinking about how we balance the wish to preserve collections with the wish to make sure that those collections are visible so that people can engage with them, enjoy them. And then the second part of the book really is looking at how we take that information and convert it into some kind of decision-making about policies and strategies for lighting collections that take both that need to see the collections, because, you know, after all, if we can't see things, what is the point of exposing them to light? (laughs) But thinking about how we might use some modern technology, but also just just some rational thinking about this uh, to to make a balance. And also, I think getting people to realise that it is going to be potentially quite a difficult process, quite a hard choice to make, and that there are certain issues that we tend to dodge, that Mm -hmm. actually we can't dodge if we're going to come up with a reasoned argument for the way we proceed with a policy or a strategy. As you mentioned, this is something that conservators have been grappling with for a very long time, this opposition between access and preservation. Have you seen thinking on this change over the decades? Yes, I think that a few things have changed. There's been a lot more blurring of the boundaries. I think we would have in the past seen this as a very much a case of conservators, conservation scientists in opposition to those in curatorial and exhibition display roles. And I think one of the great changes in this is that conservators have realised that thinking about how collections can be made accessible is part of their role. And it is not simply their task to say, well, you know, these are the limits. This is what you should do. Now you go away and figure out how to do it. And equally, I think among many curators, they now have been brought up in a period where they see this role of protecting the collections as something that they're deeply involved in. It's not just the province of the conservator. And so this this sense of working together more closely and it being a collective decision-making process, an institutional decision-making process, I think, is much more the case than it used to be. And then the other thing, of course, is the whole question of risk analysis, putting these risks within a framework, looking at what are the major risks, what perhaps are more benign, can one have a benign risk, risks that we ought to, to perhaps put to one side while we tackle the really serious issues. So I've tried to put some of this within the framework of risk analysis and the assessment of value and significance of objects. So have you seen some more creative responses to these sorts of challenges then? Ways to maintain access and balance that with preservation? Yes, I think one has seen sort of new approaches. We've long had the idea of rotation of collections. What we, I think, are getting rather more of now is the idea that when objects are on display, can we reduce the amount of light they're exposed to? And again, technology has played something of a role here, such as passive sensing of visitors in rooms 
to reduce light levels on objects when there are no visitors or fewer visitors in an area, which needs to be treated with some caution because you don't really want the lights to go off while you're still looking at an object because, you know, you haven't moved for a bit. Um, but more interesting ideas of, you know, sensing movement of people through collections and therefore switching lights on as people move through collections. Um, the Ardbill carpet in the Victoria and Albert Museum is a good example of this. It's lit at quite a low level so that you can see the object, but perhaps not read it in detail. And then once every half hour for a period of time, the light levels are brought up so that you can study it in more detail. And there are notices around it saying, you know, if you want to look at this object in more detail, then, then come back at this particular time. And there's been talk also of having days when collections are more brightly lit. And this is a particular mm -hmm. response to an increasing acknowledgement, which I've discussed in the book, that older visitors simply aren't able to see as well as younger visitors. Just the aging process means that you need more light. And so there's been some discussion about having days when you know, older visitors are encouraged to go into the museum. But as far as I know, no one has programmed that into a museum strategy. So to go back to thinking about value and maybe not trying to preserve objects in aspic forever, but accepting a process of more managed deterioration, do you think there's still a place for those sorts of tables that tell you how much light particular types of material can be subjected to for how many lux hours and that sort of thing? Well, that tabulated information is valuable, but I think it's better as a starting point than as an end point. Certainly, there's value in the categorization of objects into different levels of vulnerability. And I think there's now been I guess about 20 years, where there have not been huge changes in the way in which we categorise materials. So we, we tend now to think of four categories of vulnerability to light, ranging from objects which are more or less insensitive to those which are sufficiently sensitive that we are sure that we can't display them at a level where they can be seen well all the time. And if you look back at the museum environment when it was written in 1978, that tabulated materials into, well, in fact, at the time, three categories. But it was a relatively small list of materials, and they were quite broad categorizations. And I think we've now realized that you need a little more granularity in there. For example, prints and drawings would often be be lumped together. But there's a world of difference between a black and white print using a nice stable carbon-based ink on a good quality paper and a 19th century watercolour on rather poor quality paper using fugitive washes. So we've, we've, we've begun to separate those things out. And then we can consider using other tabulated information. So the CCI have produced fantastic tables showing how long it is we might expect materials of a given vulnerability to be on display at a particular light level before we start to see change. Mm -hmm. So this gives us some information about lifetime based on vulnerability. We have information about what we need in terms of visibility of collections for people to see them. And I think what we've been missing and 
what I've hoped to, to bring out in the book is that we, what we haven't been very good at is deciding how to bring those two pieces of information together. We know what the expected lifetime of an object would be under a particular lighting situation for a particular vulnerability of object. But what we haven't decided is whether we're happy with that. You know, if we make the calculation that in our museum now, our most vulnerable objects, if lit the way we're lighting them now, will start to show definite change in 20 years, then that's that's fine. We can keep the lighting if we're happy with that. But if we're saying, well, actually, you know, we'd rather they didn't change that quickly, then we need to think about what that means in terms of display. And that's why I think the tables are not necessarily if you like, the finishing point. They're the starting point. I remember a bit of discussion about this at the IIC London Congress. And in fact, I think Agnes Brokerhoff used the David Saunders as an example of an object <laughs> that was vulnerable, you know, over a particular amount of time. So. Did you know, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. Now, I think I might have been chairing the session, which is how I came to be the, stan- <laughs> the standard of unit of deterioration. Well, we may, we may come to use that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, and actually, it's very interesting that you mention Agnes and her work, because, you know, she has been uh, one of the key researchers looking at these questions of how to take, if you like, rather hard scientific data and make it more useful in decision making. For example, Agnes has two very interesting pieces of work that she's been involved in. The first was presenting viewers with simulations of change to objects and asking them, is this acceptable? Uh, and actually, alongside that, asking them, how much value, not monetary value, but you know, value in terms of an artistic object or a cultural object, do you think has been lost in the process of this change? And she's related it back to how that expectation would be fulfilled by current lighting policies. And rather alarmingly has found that, you know, for the particular collection she was looking at, the the public, for example, said, well, we, we think we'd quite like that change to occur over no less than 40 years. But that actually the lighting regime that was then current in the museum indicated it was likely to happen over a much shorter period of time. And that therefore, if one took that expectation seriously, one had to go back and rethink the exhibition policy. But I think it was quite instructive to indicate that our exhibition policies don't always meet our expectations for the preservation of collections. And, you know, that we're balancing always access now against access in the future to an object that's not so deteriorated that that access becomes devalued or meaningless. The other thing, interestingly, that she's done is to to look at this whole question of rotation of collections. Mm-hmm. And so what Agnes looked at was a study that explored this idea of spreading the damage across a number of objects against sacrificing one object. And so she took the example of a collection of hand-coloured maps and she produced replicas of these into which she introduced fading. And she asked visitors whether they would prefer to see one object sacrificed rather than a small amount of damage in a lot of objects. And 
she found that if there was a small amount of damage, so if we'd said, this is the amount of damage that will occur over 10 years. So people said, well, it's much better to spread it out. You know, look, there's been considerable damage to that one object. If you then extended that out into the future, and suddenly you face the situation where every object in that collection had been exposed for sufficiently long that there was really significant change to those objects, people's views changed completely. They said, oh, no, 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 it's much better to completely destroy one object. (laughs) Because otherwise, look, none of these will have, you know, significance or, or meaning that they had originally. And of course, you know, we need if we're thinking about this responsibly, to think about a much longer timeline. We have quite a poor memory for the way things looked, even across, you know, relatively short periods. And of course, you know, the visitor to the museum 60 years hence may have no yardstick against which to compare them, although that's perhaps not quite as much the case as it might have been in the past. You know, if we look back at what collections looked like 100 years ago, we might have a black and white photograph or something. You know, all these studies of how long we should keep an object before noticeable change becomes visible tend to be looking at maybe 50, maybe 100 years. And there's a lot of evidence that people are relating that to, you know, their lifetime or maybe the lifetime of their children or, you know, if they're a bit older, maybe the lifetime of their grandchildren, mm-hmm. but not thinking beyond that. I mean, I wonder if actually, possibly given the way things are going and taking a slightly apocalyptic view, actually it's irresponsible to be thinking in terms of preserving things for thousands of years when that might not come to pass and we'll all wish that actually we'd use them while we were able to. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes, it's quite an interesting moment to be discussing this, really, um, (laughs) because, you know, we we all have such a, a kind of a disrupted idea of the future at the moment. I don't know if this is the apocalypse. I suspect not. But we've been talking a lot in the last few years about the very real changes that the way the climate is altering might Mm -hmm. have on how collections are used in the future. Not necessarily whether collections have a future. So quite to what extent we have to think about, you know, the future beyond those two generations, I I, I don't know. I can't answer that one. I, I, I'm not a philosopher. What about technological innovations? There have been a lot of changes in the type of lighting that's used in museums. The way in which LED lighting has come in has revolutionised museum lighting in a very short space of time. I think when the first LED lights came in, everyone was aware that this was a technology that was going to have significance because it the energy consumption was so much lower uh, and the lamp lives were theoretically very much longer. In LEDs, everyone, I think, realised there was the potential for massive energy and cost savings and also potentially natural resource savings if you didn't have to replace the lamps every three years but could think about replacing them every 15 to 20 years, then that was a massive thing. The early LED lamps were frankly quite horrible. And I think at that moment, no one could foresee using them to to light collections. Uh, Mm -hmm. I remember the first LEDs we got at the National Gallery uh, were consigned to the toilets and the back corridors. (laughs) But inevitably, because there were so many financial attractions 
in using LEDs, money got thrown into their development and suddenly there was this huge kind of mushrooming of LEDs. And we now have generations of LEDs that are very good colour quality, their colour constancy is very good. And so they're being used everywhere. And they have some attraction for conservators. They have pretty much zero ultraviolet output. And as we all know, ultraviolet is the most damaging of the types of radiation emitted by most of the light sources we would use in a museum. Mm -hmm. Um, And they emit very little infrared radiation. So they don't project heat towards the object. So that's been a huge technological development. And there, of course, have been lots of developments in the way we control lights. We can have so-called smart lighting, which responds to visitor movement to occupation in rooms. And there, I think, will be continued developments with smart systems. And and another thing I think might come in the future, there's an idea that we might in future not buy our lighting systems, but we might lease them. And that, you know, at the end of, I don't know, a 10-year lease, you might effectively have a complete new light system put in by the lighting manufacturer. And the lighting system you have might be recycled elsewhere, either in another organization or the components would themselves be recyclable. Um, that's something I, that's been tried out in offices and warehouses. I'm not sure it's yet been tried out in, in museums. It might be that they're a little niche for that at the moment. A bit like the way people buy cars nowadays. When nobody buys a car, they just lease it for three years and then give it back and get a new one. Yeah, I think it it does have a very strong parallel. Now, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing. Mm. And it does beg the question on the car side, where do the old cars go? And in the lighting side, who wants lights that have been up in a museum for 10 years? Where do they go? Do we send these lamps off to the third world? And quite what does that say about society? What I would say is, of course, this is never the last word. I tried to make sure that the book was as up-to-date as possible when it went to print. But if anyone has any good examples of lighting practice, if anyone's seen any good research on this, then I'd love to know about it. I have a folder on my computer marked second edition. (laughs) I don't have any plans to write a second edition yet, but I've already realised that there are certain things I've left out that possibly ought to go in there. There's a whole class of object created in the 1960s and 70s using fluorescent materials, which pose all sorts of questions, both in terms of their deterioration and, of course, in their viewing. Because whereas we mostly say, no, we don't want ultraviolet anywhere near our collections, of course, for these fluorescent printing inks, having ultraviolet changes the way the object appears. And so we have to consider to what extent you know, the artist wanted us to have UV or assumed we would have UV in the lighting environment in which their works were seen. Okay, well, if any of our listeners have good examples or photos or anything like that, uh, or ideas for new glasses and materials, we'll point them in your direction. Yeah, particularly photographs of objects which have been affected by light, because it is sometimes quite difficult to get convincing images of such things, and often to differentiate change that's been caused by light from change that's been caused by, by other environmental factors. Thank you. David Saunders, thank you for talking to The C Word today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed that interview. I found the bit about making sacrifices really interesting. As mm. a, 
Yeah, just asking the public questions like that. I don't know how you guys felt about it. Yeah, I saw her present that paper um, in Turin in September 2018, I think it was. And it's, it was really highlighting, actually, and, and really interesting just to kind of see different people's perceptions of damage and what they anticipate is going to happen. And if, if they, you know, if we should spread spread the risk or sacrifice one item yeah. or... So when I thought of two things um, when I heard that bit. One is historically in our collection, they've collected like a number of different things. So there's quite a lot of duplicates for some things. So for example, Mm. like plastic collecting buckets with posters sellotaped to them, that kind of thing. So in a way, it's pretty convenient. There's duplicates of posters and stuff in certain places. So that's quite convenient because we literally have another one. Mm. There are things, for example, you might have heard of the Manchester Suffragette Banner. You might have heard of it in the news, but also because I keep talking about it on here. (laughs) It is bright purple because it was basically it was used like a few times and then folded up on the with purple on the inside. And it's just it's so beautiful and the color is immaculate that the idea of putting that on display for, you know, in the permanent galleries, even at 50 Lux, kind of makes me feel a bit sick because it's so perfect already. So Mm. it needs to go on display because it's so important. But I don't really know. That would be a case of maybe changing it more often or something. Um, We change our banners around once a year. So I don't know if it's a sacrificial thing or we just sort of, it's the only area of the permanent collection that we can rotate really easily. I mean, so for something like that, could you go with a similar approach? Or, you know how they talked about the V&A and how there was like almost like a timer for when the light levels go up so you can see something more clearly? Or could it be like a thing that is shown in its full glory for brief bursts and then... It's mostly dark otherwise. Do you think that would be a way of handling that? It's so interesting. I think it could. Yeah, I think it could work. I guess the bit that appeals to me about that as a solution, it kind of gives you a sensation of that it's something special that you can only see every now and then. Yeah. And like like there's, a, there's a feeling of like, this is a real treasure. Here's my time to see it. Especially if it's something that's like, maybe not every half hour, but more of a, you know, like it's it's not once a day because that's mm. maybe too big of a slot if you're trying to get people to come. Yeah, we're not the VNA. People just wouldn't come. <laughs> if there are a couple of chances throughout the day, then that might be a reason for people to hang around longer in your other galleries, for example, mm. and then wander back in for like... The the grand reveal and that sort of thing and it could actually be like a really nice thing I, I don't know why but it really tickled me like I, I really enjoyed that as a kind of a, a compromise for making something visible but only briefly yeah it's similar to Sarah's cases coming on only when there's people standing yeah. In, yeah. in front of them I really like that actually when I heard it, it's sort of like <laughs> feeding time at the zoo isn't it this is the time where the, <laughs> yes, where the animals are out this is the time where the lights are on um yeah. and i think that's something that i will consider when we or present as an option when we go forward and because eventually the galleries will need to be changed over and the banner is such an important object that it will probably factor in so i think the lighting the variable lighting levels and actually covering it potentially because yeah i mean coverings are an interesting one because you know that's a low-tech kind of method Mm, of limiting light exposure and it is one that 
I, I feel like is uh, more widely used in maybe historic houses and stuff like that where there's like a covering on something and it's like please do lift me if you want to see or you know yeah. something like that like a, a kind of a friendly encouraging thing I like those as a as a kind of a low cost alternative to you know something a bit more ooh we're wizards with lights <laughs> um, you know which is great but also requires a certain amount of investment so I, I like that approach again it's kind of like re- revealing a treasure which is like it can give you a real kick as a as a visitor although I am hesitant to say as well that maybe it also puts a lot of people off because I've certainly been in museum settings where it's felt a bit intimidating to go up to the thing and like lift the thing and it's kind of felt a bit weird. I don't know if you've ever been in a gallery where it feels really heavily policed <laughs> and it just feels really... Well, you're glancing over at the pe- at the uh, gallery stuff like, is it is it okay? I'm going to be shouted Am I going to be shouted at now? Is it all right? Yeah, well, you know, like what, there will always be like some places where it feels really severe and it's like, you better be dedicated to this art to look at it. Yeah. And not for too long. You can only look at it for 30 seconds. Like, yeah. Like yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it just like, it builds up like unnecessary barriers and like... Like, if I, as a white woman who is naturally at home in a museum environment, find that intimidating, (laughs) can you imagine what it would be for someone who isn't naturally at home in a gallery space? Like, that's like, that's just creating more barriers. So I'm kind of in two minds about whether I like the covering or not. What did you think, Sarah? I really liked how he mentioned that lighting should be something not just for conservation, but, you know, as a gallery's like mainstay, they should really think about how they want to achieve light levels and don't necessarily stick to the boundaries of, of what, what, what's been said before. I found that really interesting at the beginning of the interview. So I was just going to quickly mention, um, so we were talking about um, different ways in which we can stop like all, so natural light coming into the gallery. So obviously we've mentioned blinds and curtains. And there's a newer technology out there, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, but it's smart glass or smart tint. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. So at Hampton Court Palace, I think they used um, smart tint, which I think is a brand name, smart tint. And it's basically, um, is it electromagnetic glass? So they send a current through the frame of glass and then it lines up, it's very sciencey. It lines up all the, um, I don't know, molecules or neon particles or something, whatever's going on inside it. And so you can see through it or it becomes opaque. So I think they've done this at um, Hampton Court Palace in one of their rooms instead of using blinds. So, this, um, so you can actually see through the glass during certain times and when there's direct sunlight the glass becomes opaque and stops the sunlight entering the space, which is really interesting. I haven't actually been to see it in real life. Wow. The idea is that they basically like those cool sunglasses that aren't always sunglasses, right? Like basically, but in window form, which is amazing. And it's, um, yeah, so you need... You need electricity, obviously, into mm. your window systems. But you can have sensors attached to the window so you don't have to press a button. Um, mm. And it can just do it automatically. Or you can have it hooked up to an iPad or other remote tablet system. And the same you can actually do with blinds now, can't you? You can have little sensors on blinds, so blinds will come down automatically. The future is a beautiful place to live in. <laughs> well, thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. We really enjoyed having you on the show again. Yeah, thank you for inviting me back. It's been great to share experiences together. Do feel free to share, guys. We do love hearing from you. So um, let us know on, you know, social media, what your experiences with with, uh, all sorts of light systems are and what your favourite thing to keep in the dark is. (laughs) Your favourite work lights, all of that stuff. We want to hear it. (laughs) 
Today I'm reviewing Museum Lighting, a guide for conservators and curators by David Saunders. This is a 2020 Getty publication. I'm actually going to start by reading you the very first paragraph of the introduction because I thought it was so oddly perfect. And all right, a little bit because it also panders to me being Swedish. <clears throat> Hold on. <clears throat> In October 1999, Sweden's Nationalmuseum and Nordiska Akvarellmuseet, the Nordic Watercolor Museum, jointly organized a conference on daylight and lighting in art museums. The wonderfully alliterative title of this gathering, Use it for fur, use it for stir, is perhaps best rendered in English as Seductive Light, Destructive Light. In Swedish or English, it perfectly captures the conundrum central to the use of light in museums, galleries and historic houses. We need light to see our collections so that we can enjoy and study them. We love light for its ability to animate and enhance objects and spaces. But we dread light because it can steal image, colour and even form. This book is divided into 10 chapters and it's comprehensive. I'm borderline having flashbacks to my A-level equivalent science modules here. David did say he set out to gather as much relevant information on light as possible in one place, and he really has. This book is very firmly rooted in science, and it might frighten some readers a little, but I urge you to make friends with physics formulas and the fundamentals of optics, because this is a book brimming with usefulness. I'm really trying not to give you a blow-by-blow review of this publication, because it just wouldn't do it justice. Instead, I'll settle for saying that this is a book that spans a great range. It covers the nature of light, how human vision works, ways of thinking about colour, how we classify and measure it, the different light sources we encounter in our museums, how light breaks things down, and even the nature of the viewing experience. Not all of this is new information to me. Many parts are welcome refreshers, but David has really pulled together a lot more than bits of physics and display guidelines. It includes some very recent advancements and some really fresh research. The whole book straddles history and science, much like conservation in general, I guess. And I really enjoyed how most chapters start with a little history lesson. The use of candles for illumination in early museums or the origin of the first colour wheel, for example. It kind of grounds you as a reader before you start looking at colourful charts or an equation. The chapters I find most appealing as a conservator are all about the effects of light on various museum objects. And I'm absolutely delighted that this includes conservation materials, how we can mitigate against damage while making the most of what we've got, and how to develop policies and guidelines. I'm really heartened to see that access is a huge part of this book, and that's a really big deal. If you're hoping for a Thompson-style table of ultimate truth, this is not the book for you. Instead, this is a book of options, of things to consider. It gives you the freedom and responsibility to make up your own mind about light levels. It does give recommendations, but not in a hand-holding fashion, so that might disappoint some. I wouldn't say this is a quick reference book as such. It's a much more of a deep dive into the subject of light, and it aims for a broad but surprisingly thorough understanding of what light actually is, and how it relates to what we do in heritage settings. It is, get ready for it, enlightening. This book has 328 pages, full-colour illustrations throughout, and lots of nice graphs and diagrams too. It costs £55 from Amazon, or $70 from the Getty Shop, 
And as usual, we'll put links to those in the show notes. Dear Jane, my question is, what makes a good dissertation? From an anonymous student. Thank you for your question. What makes a good dissertation? And certainly at the moment, that is very high in my consciousness at the moment, as many of the students that I work with are moving into their dissertation phase. So we let's deal with this technically and then emotionally, I think. I think that what makes a good dissertation is one where you could start with a big picture, where you can locate your concept in the, the wider issues of heritage, society or something like that, where you can then drill down to one particular aspect that you think will help illuminate the bigger picture in some way. Take that forward, develop it, go with, with, with that idea and come to a conclusion that might be we could do things differently or we're doing things just great at the moment or we need to find out more. And then reconnect that back to that big picture at the end and say, well, these are the implications for my fundamental challenge. And interestingly, I would absolutely say that concluding that you weren't able to find anything new or that nothing needs to be changed is as valuable as finding out that something is massively needing changed. I would say that inherent in that description, I mentioned finding one particular aspect one of the things that goes wrong with dissertations is when people try to do too much, try to fix all the problems in one go. That can be done. It takes a very special kind of writer that you can really broad range in a dissertation. I think for most people, finding an angle, a viewpoint and taking it forward is the critical thing. And that is, I think, what I like in a, in a dissertation. Someone who is able to find a new angle, just maybe looking at the familiar problem in a new way or bringing in a new point of reference or a new tool or just a new set of data just to take our understanding of that perspective forward in some way. I like pictures. <laughs> I like figures and diagrams. I really like it when you try to represent your ideas in a range of different ways. And I think it's very good for all of our thinking to mediate our ideas in different ways and explain them in different ways. And I think it brings all of our thinking more clearly. I think that I, a pet peeve is I don't think a good dissertation is asking a question of the profession and counting the answers because I feel that it's a closed loop. If the question is not that exciting, if it hasn't got a direction and it's simply cataloguing what exists and representing it, I struggle to get really passionate about that. And I discourage questionnaires whenever I can from students, although in the virtual lockdown world that we're in, I think questionnaires are going to become an inevitable feature in many dissertations this year. But nonetheless, I would say before you go to a questionnaire, you have to have a very good reason why you're asking people to give their time and why you would expect anyone to sit down and answer that. And unfortunately, I would say that a lot of questionnaires that you get from students are poorly constructed because the students have a very narrow worldview. I don't actually mean that's just for students, to be honest with you. That's most questionnaires. The person who sets the questionnaire has already pre-decided what they want or has already, hasn't challenged their view and perspective on the world. And so they ask questions in a very narrow way, sometimes framed really quite hideously, embarrassingly, to manipulate the respondents to an answer. I looked at one yesterday on a website, about a website, and it was it was kind of like, tell us why you think our website is marvellous. And then the next question is, tell us how much of a change our work has made. You know, and it was, it was very skewed and, um, and unpleasant. But really, the last thing I'd like to say about a good dissertation is that it has some passion, that you care, that you want to know the answer, that you want to challenge 
something in that that really motivates you because you are going to spend longer on this, whether it's a master's dissertation, an undergraduate dissertation or a PhD. It will be the longest you've ever sat and worked on your own on an idea. And there's got to be a fire within you to, to take that through. So last two notes. What I think helps a dissertation is when you finish, if you leave yourself a week, go back, edit and take 10% of the words out, your dissertation will be way better. And if you're proud of it, why not think about sharing it? Several of the professional journals in AIC, Journal of Institute of Conservation and others around the world are always keen on new writers. If you're pleased with it, why not get in touch with the editors and see if there's a way for you to develop that to an answer, perhaps with a mentor. So good luck, go work hard on your dissertations And don't worry that at one point you're absolutely going to loathe and detest it. That's the same for all of us. Just keep pushing on through. These things are, to some extent, a test of your um, stamina as well as of your brilliance. And so you'll be tested on both aspects. Good luck. Welcome back to the Benchwork Bar. I'm Amanda Richards, and today we're making a fluorescent bulb. I don't have a mocktail for you today. Sorry about that. Maybe next time. All right. Well, let's get started. So the first ingredient we'll start with for our fluorescent bulb is one and a half ounces of rum. I am using Bugatti Gold. Um, That's what I have on hand. And I didn't feel like going to the store to get, you know, something else. So we'll go ahead and put that in a shaker with ice in it. There we go. And then we're going to do a half an ounce of dry vermouth. And half an ounce of sweet vermouth. To that we'll add a quarter ounce of triple sec. and the juice of half a lemon, which is roughly about a quarter of an ounce. I also like to put a little bit more citrus in mine anyway. So, okay, get that all squeezed in. Working against me tonight. All right, once you have all that into your shaker with ice, you'll go ahead and add the lid, shake it for about 30 seconds or until you get frosty and nice and cold. And then strain it into a martini glass on top of an orange slice. Strain it in. And that is your fluorescent bulb. I hope you enjoyed today's cocktail and I'll see you next time. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. 
We've crunched the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patrons, Catherine, Simon and Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Sarah Potter, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode all about photographs. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Oh my god, I'm just going to have to hold the microphone up to Cuthbert. He's just come in and is purring. Cuthbert! Come on! Can you hear that? Whirring away. Sorry.